Hey, everybody. Welcome to Be Significant. I'm sitting here with my uh, beautiful co-host, Beth Cook. And Beth, how was your weekend? I mean, pretty good, Matt. We've had some pretty good weather here in Chi-Town. It's switching over to fall and technically it's officially fall, but I'm just going to pretend it's still a little summer. So I have been spending as much time outside as possible. What about you? What's been going on with you? Well, as we're recording this, it's late September and we had a frost yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, We were going to golf yesterday and they actually had a frost warning and they didn't open up the course till nine. So yeah, I think we may be jumping right from summer to winter here. Yeah, I got a plan because I keep looking at the weather because I have to shut down my deck, you know, like the water, I have to close right. it off. Um, and I don't want to do it until very last minute, but I just got to plan ahead. So if it gets even close to where it's yeah. going to be high, low 50, or excuse me, low 50s, high 40s, I've got to jump yeah. it. I think you've got a little bit of time. I'm Typically hoping. by mid-October, you know, before the real cold, cold weather comes. So what'd you do with the kids if you didn't golf yesterday? Or well, I... I, I got to talk to you about this Pokemon Go. Do you know anything about Pokemon? So my nephews are all into Pokemon and I, I don't even understand it to its full extent. Tell me more that you've learned about Pokemon. I, I'm not, I don't want to bore our audience about Pokemon, but I have a 10 year old son and this is one of the things that we've started to share. Okay. So there's an app called Pokemon Go. All right. I know more about Pokemon than I'm ever going to want for the rest of my life. But my my son can tell you everything. I mean, he could do a TED talk on it. OK, and they would eventually have to stop it and shut him up because he would just keep going. OK, but he knows this stuff inside and out. And it's really impressive how his brain works. So I want to talk about this business model of Pokemon because it's amazing what they've done. So there's this app. OK. And basically the app is, it takes you into this live world. So when the app is on, wherever you're at on the planet, there's these little on the phone, it shows you where you're at. So if you're at a park, it shows you like the diagram of the park you're at. If you're at a college, if you're at a business, if you're at Target, it like shows you, it shows, yeah, it's like Google Maps, but it, without the street addresses and all that. And wherever you go, these little cartoon characters pop up and there's hundreds of them that they've created. Okay. And they all have their own name and they all have like the evolution of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Okay. So if you buy a Pikachu, everybody knows Pikachu, the little yellow guy with the lightning bolt. If you catch a Pikachu on your phone, if you catch enough of them, you can evolve Pikachu into his evolution. Which, a, which I don't know. That's where my son comes in. Okay. <laughs> so imagine a thousand different characters. Okay. And they all can evolve. And then you have to catch them and they go into your Pokedex. They go into like your catalog. So it's like when I used to collect baseball cards, you wanted to get every baseball card from that year, you know, or you wanted all the Cubs or all the Royals or all the White Sox. And so it's just what's amazing to me is these kids get so in tuned in it. They know the characters, they know their evolution, and then they want to go buy the TV show. They want to buy the movies. They want to buy the, the characters, the stuffed animals. And, but it, it's never ending. So my son and I, we've started to take these walks every day to the park 
and we go catch Pokemon. And he teaches me about each Pokemon. And we get an hour, hour and a half just to catch them. Like, huh? so you're at the park. Yeah. How do you catch it? How do, what's the action? So they'll pop up on your phone. So this little character will pop up on your phone. So you're okay. standing there in the park. There might be eight characters that just popped up and they're saying they, they've just hatched and they're there. Okay. And there's this little, it's called a Pokemon Pokeball. And you spin it and you throw it at the character. And if you spin it right, it lands on the character and it goes in the ball. And now you have that character. Okay. So you've caught a butterfly basically. Okay. And then it gives you pokey candy or something or stardust. And the more stardust and pokey candy you have, you can eventually evolve that character. Okay. So, so and it's just, and then they have these little events where maybe you need a Pikachu and on this for Saturday from one to three o'clock, wherever you're at, there, there might be a hundred Pikachu that you can find that day. And there might be a special one. Instead of him being yellow, he's green that day or red that day. And you can catch him. And now you have a special character. And it's just, it's amazing what they've built. Just the technology alone. Is impressive. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. And I, I just had to get it out of my brain because there's there's millions of people that play this. We, Kate and I, we were at um, my niece's game. My her, She's the head coach at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. And they were playing Colorado College last weekend. Oh, fun. So we went down to watch the game. So okay. now we're in this different location and we're catching different types of Pokemon because we're at a different place. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just so cool. We're walking around the park and we ran into this woman. She had to be 50 years old. She had to be my age. And she's and she looks at us and goes, are you guys catching Pokemon too? And we go, yep. You know, so it's so just people are bonding. I love I love the um, creativity behind it. Yeah. Uh, definitely an amazing business model because they all, my nephews asked me for the physical cards also. Right. Oh, the, I forgot about the cards. Yeah, yeah. There's like, there's multiple ways to, again, I'm thinking from a business model for revenue generation and it's bringing kids together that are meeting each other. You know, parents and kids are doing fun things together. You're meeting other adults yeah. that are doing it on their own, apparently. <laughs> Yes. I yes. mean, I mean, wow. I, wow. That's all I got to say. The only yeah. thing you said right there is impressive is I think the only transition that I can use to lead us to our next guest. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and trust me, it's a terrible transition to lead us into Bill Chalk. But the fact if you're a parent and you and you're like me and you just want more quality time with your kids, it's it's a great tool to use so if you if it's yeah, out there the know that a guy that was totally against ever doing pokemon i'm all in and i'm, I'm addicted to it now so you're learning about all the names the characters That's right. uh, i mean amazing tell, tell us about tell us about our great guest uh bill shock yeah let's take that impressive um transition and let's talk about another impressive man so bill shock is a co-alum he graduated in 1965 from Coe College. Matt and I both went to Coe College for those that didn't know, and this might be your first episode. So welcome, if that's the case. And uh, then Bill, you know, while he was at Coe, and this is really where we focus a lot of the interview on, Bill had the opportunity as a freshman to go down with 12 other kids and one of the senior faculty and actually go to Tulu 
University of Tupelo, Mississippi, I believe it was. And really that's a key time in 1962 between the segregation and desegregation. And he got to go spend time mainly in all black university, all these kids. And there was, all the kids were white except for one woman, um, Jean Johnson Sidner, I believe is her name. And, you know, on their trip, they were in three cars packed down heading south and they stopped in Memphis and he talks a little bit about their experience there. That was the first time they really experienced like this overt racism. Like they couldn't go in and eat because, you know, one of their classmates was African-American. And um, so they all ate outside. And, they, and then they started learning when they got down further to Mississippi, you know, it's just the drinking fountains were labeled. Everything was like whites only, blacks only, colored entrance, non-colored entrance. Like, so it was really overt and in their face. And so things that they were watching on TV just actually came to life. And so we get some amazing time with Bill and these, these students and they, they, a few of them put together a book a few years back and they got it published. It's just a small book, but it was really interesting. Just their rememberings and their accounts of those experiences and how that experience shaped their life. Bill went on to become a Navy pilot and then after he did his 20 years and retired from the Navy, he then went on to law school at Marquette University and graduated in 1989. Um, he then, you know, volunteered, did that, was a district attorney for a while. And then he spent some time as, you know, a district board of education president, was elected the president there and spent some time. And he moved up through the officer positions, ending obviously as the president there. And just has always been an active member of trying, he describes as e evening the playing field of he truly believes from that experience in Tougaloo that all people are created equal. And unfortunately, the world in which we live in hasn't allowed that even playing field. So he tries where he can to have that perspective to help balance education. He thinks education is a real way to help even the playing field and just an amazing man. Um, and really, I really enjoyed the interview, just him sharing his experience and his wisdom throughout the years when something that we just read about in books as history, he actually lived. Matt, what did you think of it? I, I thought it was great. You know, I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's such an admirable life that he's lived and, and the empathy that he has for, for all people and uh, the time and effort that he's put in to make sure all kids get the same opportunity to grow up in our country and, have the same opportunities is really impressive. So really glad we got to know him and I got to know him and, and uh, I'm excited to share him with our audience. Yeah. We hope you enjoy this interview with Bill Shock. Bill Shock, welcome to Be Significant. How are you? Well, great to be aboard. Doing really well. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for being here, Bill. Um, we are excited. We have a whole team of co-alums on Be Significant today. So that's pretty exciting. But where I really wanted to start out, Bill, like, I think it's the coolest collaboration that you did with some of your, you know, old schoolmates. And you you guys really got together and authored a book about a trip you went to Mississippi in 1962, I believe, called Even Our Friendship Was Illegal. So tell me how this collaboration came into action. Tell me how the book came about. And then how did you even, you eight of you, get on the trip to go to Mississippi during this kind of tumultuous time in our country? Well, the book started out while I was a member of the Alumni Council. And you, I, you were probably the president in 2014, I think it was. 
Okay. And uh, Jean Johnson, the alumni director at the time, mentioned that a group of people, kids had gone to Tougaloo, Mississippi, and I wonder what they're doing now. And I said, well, I was one of those kids. And uh, that's what started the discussion. And then we were invited to um, speak at the event for freshmen that's held the first week of classes, I think, in Sinclair Auditorium. And I was able to round up, I think we had uh, 12 people plus the chaplain, John Walker, made the trip. But I was able to round up uh, six of them that came back to co Phil Ensley, Vicki Burroughs, Dottie McCarter, Gene Johnson Sidner, Kelly Fells, and myself. And we put on this, um, this program at uh, the Sinclair Auditorium, and it just blew me away. The kids were really excited about it. We were excited about it. And uh, a couple of us got carried away, Phil Ensley, but he had a story to tell. He's a great storyteller. And Jean Johnson came back, and uh, she's a Luther, she's a Methodist minister now. Uh, at re she's retiring, and uh, everybody had so much fun. And then uh, Sally Fells gave this dynamic presentation about everything she did in life. She slammed her hand down and say, "It's all because of Tougaloo," and the thing got uh, really emotional. And then it ended with uh, us all singing, We Shall Overcome. And mm. the place was rocking. That's great. And, uh, yeah, it was just emotional. And you were in the front, Beth, and uh, other members of the alumni council. And I was really you know, happy that that the show support for me and what we were doing at Co. And then uh, some of us uh, thought about, well, I talked to Gene. Why don't we? Maybe uh, we can write a book. And I was able to uh, gather eight people that contributed to the book. And everybody is smart. I'm really, I was really impressed. Uh, Dottie McCarter is a Phi Beta Kappa from Co. Top 10. Um, Gene Johnson is very smart. Gene Johnson, Sidner, everybody. And uh, we, we put together this book. And Gene... Uh, Gene Johnson, the alumni director, found somebody to edit it for us that was a 92 graduate. And she did a beautiful job parsing it out. And then it became a book. And uh, we had, uh, well, Gene Johnson had the thing published for us. And we ordered 100 copies. And if you write a book, oh, Matt, you're writing a book. It's only 75 pages long, but it only cost $2.50 to publish. Yeah, and it's on sale for fifteen dollars. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's great. That was fantastic, and they made a mistake at the printers, and they sent us two hundred copies. So we made out okay, and uh, the book belongs to the college now. Any money that's collected for the book uh, goes to the college, and uh, the only source I'm aware of is Prime, um, Amazon, and we got five reviews. All were five star reviews. Uh, Marv Levy even wrote a review, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and a friend from my Navy days, who's a playwright in Los Angeles, he wrote a blistering, exciting review that blew him away. So I thought, my gosh, this is really cool. Oh, this and, really yeah, Brent, Professor Bree uh, Arnold, she uses that in her freshman class. In fact, we're going to be speaking. Three of us are going to be 
talking about our experience in uh, October. Yeah, so tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about your experience. I mean, I reread the book because I read it back in the day when it was a first published and then reread it just recently to prepare for this. And sure. um, tell us about your experience. Like, I mean, again, the things that you can remember that were vivid, the things that were impressionable for you about when you were there in Tougaloo. Sure, I had never gone on in anything like this. And I had thought this is going to be very exciting. You know, I've made trips to California because my parents had relatives out there, but nothing like this. So I had to take that opportunity as a freshman going into my sophomore year. And uh, 12 of us went down there in three cars. And I remember how hot it got as we continued south and humid. And then they had these little bugs. We called them gnats. I don't know what, there's another name for them too. But we stopped in Memphis, Tennessee. And we went to a drive-in and we were not allowed to go into the building because Gene Johnson was with us, our only African-American student. So we all ate outside and ate our lunch out there, then got on our way. And that stuck in my mind because later I ran AAU track and I was with a lot of Olympians uh, and they were world famous Olympians. And I talked to a guy named Willie May uh, who took second in the uh, 110 meter high hurdles in Rome. And he said, yeah, when we were down there for the Mason Dixon games, uh, he said, we couldn't, uh, I was black and I couldn't go into a hotel. I had to go it's into crazy, a crazy, right? Yeah. Good start to that. And then we got down to Tougaloo, which is 10 miles south or north of uh, Jackson. We lived, the boys lived in the dorms and the girls lived in the girls' dorms and we ate the girls' dorms. And then each of us were assigned different things to do. And my job during the day was to work at a black YMCA in Jackson. And I had just finished a course in games and minor sports taught by Bill Fitch, Coach Bill Fitch. And uh, so I was able to use that knowledge and uh, have some fun with the kids. But at night, that was the great learning experience because at Tougaloo, it was a test bed for civil rights. Half the staff were white, half were black. You didn't find that any place else in Mississippi. And they brought in people for us to meet. I met Edgar Evers. He was um, a wonderful guy, very athletic, trim, pro-civil rights, and he was responsible for the NAAC, that part of the South. Uh, Met James Meredith and his attorney, Constance Baker Motley. We went to a private home in Jackson to meet her, him rather. And he was quiet, didn't say much. And they were developing a strategy they were gonna use to go into the University of Mississippi to break that barrier. And I was, I was awestruck. I, I couldn't even think of anything to say and I probably would have been out of place, but I listened to Constance Motley. She was so smart and uh, I didn't realize that she came from the East Coast. So she was a nationally known attorney in civil rights and watching and listening and I was mesmerized. So later in life, uh, when I was in the military and then went to law school, I followed her career and she wound up being the first African-American female judge in the United States courts amazing amazing and, you have to listen yeah. to her you know when it was yeah, yeah. yeah you know you're listening to greatness 
She was uh, the caliber of Thurgood Marshall, who later was on the Supreme Court. And then uh, we met Dr. Berinsky, Ernst Berinsky. He, Berinsky, he was a German Jew that got out of Germany before all hell broke loose in the 30s. And he went to Tougaloo. And he was the architect of a lot of things that were later done in the civil rights movement, sit-ins at uh, dime stores and other things. And he was a little bit on the chubby side, but he had this magnetic personality, like you'd want him as your grandfather or your uncle, because he was so kind. And every time he had a dinner, and he had a lot of dinners, he'd give you a pencil. That was a gift from him, an ordinary pencil. So I had a bunch of pencils when I went home. And just listening to him and think, telling us about civil rights and the way to get civil rights, we could continue to get it, work at it, and do it peacefully. And that was one of the origins of the peaceful march and peaceful demonstrations that were held out held in the South during the 60s. And, uh, you know, some other things that I mentioned in the book, like uh, we were going to, I'm not going to say trick because you, legally you can't do a trick, but uh, we developed a good friendship, Bill Ensley and I, with an attorney down there named Bill Higgs, who was white, but he was a civil rights advocate. And he went to the University of Mississippi Law School, a top graduate, and he took me on a trip to the airport, Jackson Airport. And when you went into the dining room or the restaurant, there were two sections. There was the cordoned off section that had a sign for white employees only. And on the other side were these uh, stools that didn't have a seat on top of them. And those were where if you, were, if you wanted to stand, you could have your lunch there. If you were black, that's where you ate. That was really phony. And he and I walked in and they said, oh, this is just, this is just for grins basically. So we ate on the side that was only for white employees only. We had a nice meal, chit-chatted. We walked out of there. And as we walked in, this is set up. Uh, Phil Ensley and a black guy came in and they were denied access. So the next day, Higgs and some other people found, uh, filed a complaint with the federal court in Jackson, Mississippi. I don't know how it turned out, but that was, they were showing us an example of how it works. How Prejudice and racism works in the state of Mississippi. Wow. Bill, Bill, and, uh, yes. I'm just so impressed and amazed. You know, when Beth and I were coming through Co, civil rights, women's rights, they've, it's, it's always been at the forefront and it hasn't changed in our country. But in the early 60s, it was in your face. And, and, and I'm really interested in the early 60s, what you were seeing on TV, what you were hearing, what was happening in Mississippi and Alabama and Virginia and everywhere throughout the South and even, even on, in the Northern countries. Where did, the, where did the passion, where did the courage come to hop in a car and drive down there and be a part of that and wanting to be a part of that solution? Where did that come from? Did that come from your parents? Did that come from conversations at Co? Where, where did that all start? I'd say it started with me. I I, um, I had uh, seen all this stuff on TV 
the blacks getting beat up and nothing really registered with me because I was so far away from that. I grew up in Chicago, but I was on the Northwest side of Chicago where we only had one black in our high school and he was a sophomore when I was a senior. And um, I, I thought I want to do something that's out of the ordinary. You know, you go to class and then you come back and I was in athletics too, a lot of athletics, but I wanna do something that's different. So that was the primary driver for me to go down there in the first place. And I was in good shape. I didn't, I didn't think anybody could, I could handle anybody at that time. But right. uh, so I was positive when we went down there and then my eyes were open uh, to see that blatant disregard for uh, respect for all human beings. And that stuck with me. What, what were some of the things that you saw that a, a, an 18 year old today may not understand how bad it was? What were some of the things that just kind of hit you right in the heart? Well, in, there were signs in Jackson uh, for whites only. And then the water fountains, for example, there's a picture in the book with Bill Ensley and one of the other people that came. Uh, signs all over the place that for whites only, for blacks, the blacks go here. Uh, my experience uh, uh, interviewing uh, Ross Barnett, who was the governor of Mississippi, and uh, somehow I got an interview with him. I was really nervous because I had never met anybody uh, in any power structure. And I walked into the office. It was completely white, white walls, a white shag carpet. He had a white suit on and he was even white, you know, and I was really nervous and I was asking him different questions. And um, he said, um, well, the only positive thing he could say about colored people was, yeah, I think there are some good athletes out there that are colored. And that's the only good thing he could say. And that, that stuck with me forever because I, a couple of years ago, and I put this in the book, I went to an old newspaper. After we had left in September of 62, he was at the University of Mississippi, Kentucky football game, 43,000 people there, cheering him, giving him a standing ovation for fighting to keep James Meredith out of Mississippi, the University oh. of Mississippi. He didn't succeed. 43,000 people yelling and screaming. He, no, they didn't want that. And that really, that's an image I will always remember. And I found that article in the Chicago Tribune and I put it in the book when I wrote it, that my share of the book. And that stuff stuck with me. But my, did it impact me and my decision making? Well, it did, but it took a lot of years. Uh, I was looking at Vietnam and I went into the Navy because my family members from World War II were all Navy people. And so I became a Naval officer and I was a flyer. I had people that worked for me and I had some blacks and I was always fair. I mean, you know, everybody's equal. And I didn't have any racist problems with any of those people, but there was the hint of racism on the ship. And later when I was a young Lieutenant, I was in a court martial with uh, a big riot of black people occurred on another aircraft carrier. And uh, the ship had to come back into port. Well, I 
I meted out what I felt was the sentence that was appropriate for the kid. And uh, anyway, but that stuck with me. And the Navy then started some anti-racist programs. And, uh, you know, they're still working on stuff, racism in the service. But I, I used that experience when I was dealing, when I got more responsibility and I had more people that were, who, uh, that were working for me to be fair and unbiased in decision-making as it affects everybody. And, uh, and I retired at 20 years, went to law school, and I was a prosecutor for eight years before I got cancer, then I retired. And when I was a prosecutor, I would see these people come before the court. And in Racine, Wisconsin, I don't have the exact statistics, but I think more African-Americans came into the court for violent actions than others. And going over their records, so many of them were undereducated, didn't finish high school. And what I knew from studies is if you don't have an education, if you're black male, you can't read by the third grade, you're probably gonna wind up in jail or prison one day. You know, people don't give you breaks unless you deserve it. And if you don't have an education and you get frustrated and then all this stuff happens. And that was the driving force because I remember Tugler, how cheated these people were, people working out in the cotton fields. The father couldn't get a job. So the mother worked doing work in the fields, picking cotton. So that was a driving force for me to run for the school board in Racine. The mm -hmm. Teachers hadn't had a contract in five years and uh, we needed to get the graduation rate up of our minority students. And um, when I came on the board, 31% of the kids were on free and reduced lunches. When I left nine years later, it was up to 62%. We were getting more kids that needed help. And so we developed a lot of strategies to help better educate the kids. And uh, some of it worked, some of it didn't. And I was fortunate enough in those nine years, I was president four years, vice president three, and, and then uh, treasurer one year. So I was always in a leadership position to try to influence policy with the school board and with the administration. We had the third largest district in the uh, state, 21,000 students, about 2,500 employees. And, uh, you know, we wanted to be fair to everybody. And that was the, the you know, the moment. I had seen it in Tougaloo. I saw it as a DA, a district attorney, and I could see it in my own district. Bill, talk, talk I want to take you back to 62 again, and, and but I, I talk about what you've seen then and what you're seeing now in this, as a school board person and what you're seeing in your community. And, and, and some things have changed dramatically and some things haven't changed at all. When you were a, a, a white guy going down to Mississippi and trying to help this cause, this civil rights cause, if I'm, if I'm in the black community, I'm not trusting anybody that's white. What, what did that relationship look like? How did you create a relationship? How did you build trust so the black community knew that you were there to help and, and be a part of the solution and not part of the problem? How did that come to be? I, I'm, I'm just curious about that. 
Well, my day-to-day -day responsibility in the morning and early afternoon was working at the Black Daycare Center. And, you know, I'm, I'm an easygoing guy. I, I, I shared kindness. We told stories. We had games. And I was not trying to be abusive and disciplinary, do disciplinary work because there was somebody else there to do that if that was required. But just a white guy, they may not see. Right. And, right. Um, you know, I, this is a quick story, but uh, when I was president of the school board, uh, and I'm a, I'm a veteran, and I was able to get 10 buses to bring students to our veteran service on Veterans Day at the biggest auditorium we have in the city. And uh, Paul Ryan was the guest speaker this one year, and I was also a guest speaker. And I had Paul, there's a, several schools that were basically 90% black. I told Paul, would you mind coming over and speaking to these kids because they may never see or hear or be with a person of your stature. And he was a member of the House of Representatives for 20 years. He ran for vice president. And he was very kind and he was really spoke well with the kids. And I thought, gosh, you know, this is this is a big deal. And their principal, who was also black and a friend of mine, he had, in fact he played too bad you didn't recruit him. He was a starting guard from Wisconsin. He uh he he told the kids how what what a big deal this is. And I think all that went back part of it to Tougaloo because what I saw there. Uh, and what do I see today? Well, I see a lot of improvement. You know, we've got people that are uh, in big positions. You've got a vice president of the United States who's African-American, a lot of the department heads are. Here in our government, local government, we've got blacks that have responsible positions, but there's still that racial bias. And that is a tough thing to overcome. And we've got a very good mayor. I live in a village. I was also president of my village and we didn't have to deal with some of those issues because it's primarily white. But uh, he's doing a great job working with African-Americans. And you know, it's, it's still there, but it's moving forward, but we still need to do better and we still need more equality and inclusion. Agreed, agreed. What do you think you've like that that biggest learning that you from Tougaloo, you know, through those different experiences, through a lot of those listening sessions to some of the courage to ask questions to the people in power that didn't believe as you believed. And then that experience, what do you take with you throughout, you know, the, the time you spent in the military, the time you spent as a you know district attorney, the time now you spend on the board president, and then just now your volunteering efforts, both, you know, throughout your alumni um, considerations with Co and other institutions. Tell me, like, what is that theme that you're like? It really started here, and I try to do this in each of those opportunities to help bridge the gap. What What is that for you? Yeah, I think I I firmly believe that we're all created equal, and we have an obligation to ensure that we take care of our neighbor. Our neighbor could be ten miles away could be a kid, could be an adult. We, we need to be fair with everybody and give people that are in school a step up and help them get equal treatment and equal education, just like everybody else. 
that's been a driver for me. And, uh, and it's in many ways, it's been successful. In many ways, it's been frustrating because of money issues. And uh, one of our political parties in Wisconsin is now going heavy into uh, the voucher program to support private and religious schools. And I'm totally against that. Uh, they, they take away money from public education. One of my mantras was um, education is the engine that drives democracy in this country. And that was one of the things I ran on. Um, so it's, the bottom line is we're all equal and we need to equalize the playing field for everybody and give everybody a shot at success. And without getting into specifics about my donating, uh, I with, with what I do at Co. I donate a lot of stuff that will help people who just don't have the money to yeah. either stay at Co. or can't come to Co. in one way or another. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. What what do you what what do you advise if you were on a board for a long time when you're if you're talking to a room of high school principals and 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 coaches and administrators what advice would you give them in just terms of understanding the empathy that we need to have for minority students and and what sometimes just gets forgotten of, of, of yeah that's a that's a great question and you're a great coach and you know i i've always respected my coaches and I've learned something from every single coach. In high school, we had one coach that coached the football team, and we were always the top second or third ranked team in this whole city of Chicago. One year, we won the championship, uh, played in the prep ball. The, um, what would I tell them? Everybody's equal in our eyes, and they deserve a shot. And if you have to make some exceptions, Make some exceptions. Give everybody a shot at being good. Encouragement. And sometimes, especially with a coach, uh, you know, Tressler at Ohio State uh, unfortunately got fired because he told a lie about one of his players and who legally got some money. The kid didn't have any money. Right. What a frustrating thing is that. And now I don't say do something illegal, but help your players help your students as much as you can. And if you do that, they're going to feel that. You know, here comes, uh, you know, I was thinking last night, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Fitzgerald was my elementary school teacher. And if you had to go down and see her, you knew you were in trouble. So I had to go down and see her one time. <laughs> she was so kind. <laughs> really? Not what you were expecting. <laughs> I don't know what I did, but... You know, I had to see Miss uh, Miss Fitzgerald, uh, and uh, so be kind, give them give the kids responsibility, and um, support because we need to. You know, we're going to have this is even more important now because yeah. our population base is going down. Right, and we need yeah. smart kids, we need productive kids, we need kids with courage, and that's all going to start in the home. Hopefully. But when you see on TV a lot of the minorities, they're giving their love, their, their grandmother, their aunt, right. their mother, and too many homeless or one 
one parent family. Right. Uh, we've got to take a place to uh, right some of the wrongs in the past. One, one of the frustrating things for me is you keep hearing every day about the, the, the history of our country is being rewritten or things are being deleted. And not only do the white kids need to hear our history and understand our history, but our, our, our African-American kids, our Asian-American kids, they need to understand our history too. They don't understand why they're in the position and why we're in the position we're in as a country now. And I think when we're, we don't teach that history, the things that you saw firsthand um, and, and the murders and the abuse and, and the inequality, you know, the fact that that's not being taught and that's being eliminated to me is a catastrophe. We, we need these kids to understand where we came from and how we got to this point. Because if they don't understand it, then we're going right back to where we were. And, and we're, we're seeing that reversal. Um, how, how do you feel about that? As somebody that sat on a board, you know, if, if somebody presented to the board that they wanted to eliminate this part of history from what was being taught, how would you have handled that? Well, I would have said it's not going to happen. <laughs> on my watch yeah and it shouldn't happen on anybody's watch because we're living in a world today you know we read in history books oh revisionist history you know you go back 100 years and it really was happening this way it's happening right now in front of our eyes right there's a move right. to uh eliminate all that stuff from the january 6th uh platform right and right. the Mueller report they want that to disappear uh, that's that can't happen. And they want to burn books. One guy who's running for governor in another state, I saw this on uh, TV the other night, he had a, a blowtorch on a stack of books. That, that's Adolf Hitler stuff. Yeah. No, it can't happen. And what? how do we combat that? Well, we vote people out of office that don't share our values, and there are an awful lot of them, and you make sure, and this is a big thing in our state, uh, gerrymandering, uh, gerrymander the state so it's fair to everybody. We have a hundred and roughly 200,000 more Democrats that live in this state, but the Republicans control 63% of the seats. Now, something's wrong with that. And I don't want to get political, but that's my reality as I look at that. Yeah. But I want to vote for people that can um, that share my values and want to make this country run better. Putin, from my experience, and I was, when I was in the service, I worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff for three years. And I was involved with um, releasing of the nuclear weapon against certain countries. And I knew the number of weapons that were dedicated. This Putin is just happy as can be with what's going on in America, but yeah. it's breaking our resolve. And I just heard on, uh, you heard it on the um, TV recently, uh, Miley's, uh, Millie is retiring as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He had to instruct the whole unified and strategic commands under his responsibility, how this works if the president says, let's go to war and drop some nuclear weapons right. or fire. Right. And this is, this was, suicidal um we're, we're becoming very weak because nobody's fighting back with the stupid stuff that's going on right yep 
So we yeah. got to vote, vote people in and vote people out that we, don't share your values, our values. We need that continual fight to give everybody a voice. You know, the, absolutely. There's too many people fighting to keep people from having a voice and keeping them down and keeping them from wanting to speak up. And there's that, the fear component just gets stronger and stronger. So I have great respect for you, Bill. And, and I'm, and I'm glad we have you in this world. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited that I've gotten a chance to meet you and, and uh, you know, you're, you're the role model that I'm always looking for. And, and, and I, I, I appreciate and respect everything you've done. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Yeah, yeah we um, love to have played for you. Well, <laughs> you I, I would still can get out more, there. Give me more Bill Shocks. Yeah. I'll win a lot of games. Give, give me that. It'll be great. Yeah. So, Bill, we are getting ready to go into our rapid fire question session. So, you know, wrapped up the core part of the interview. Now we're going to have a little fun. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right. Matt's going to kick us off. All right, Bill, this this is a, 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 an easy one for you, I think. It, you're, you've retired, but you've done a lot of things. If, if, if you could do a different job than you've done in your life, what would you do? Out of all the things I've done, and if I could do something different, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change. I'm, I'm, I tell Barb I'm happy where, where I've been, what I've done. And, yeah. You know, I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. I'm so impressed that you went back to law school when you did. 20 you did. years after military. Me too. Amazing. I didn't realize the timing. And I was like, mother pearl, that's really good. <laughs> Amazing. So tell what tell what would you tell your 21-year-old self if you could, you know, right now with all the history and things that you've been through, you go back and you look back and say, here's a little bit of advice that you might, you know, just a little advice from the future that you'd give your 21-year-old self. Well, I'd say... Um... Take a class in public speaking mm. because the first time I spoke about Tougaloo, it was at a church in Cedar Rapids and uh, John Walker, the chaplain was with me and I got up and I was so, church was packed. I, I froze. I didn't know what to say. And then he took over and uh, I learned to speak after that. You know, I knew, and I, you know, I've, Spoken to uh, brief the president, vice president of the United States, all the chair and chiefs of staff. So I've learned how to speak, I think. Yeah. And so I think that's very important. I would also tell a 21 year old uh, if you didn't take a course in accounting, make sure you do it now because I never thought I would be in business and I've never really been in business, but you have to know accounting. And I would say, and also, Develop a, um, a, a rapport and a series of questions when you meet people on a train. Like I've done this in New York. We go to New York a couple of months out of the year and meet somebody on a bus and start a conversation. They'll talk and just be friendly with people and uh, don't expect anything in return because they will appreciate it. You may be talking to a person who hasn't talked to anybody in a week yeah. because they're senior citizens. Uh, and that's that's a kind thing to do. So be kind. Yeah. Be kind. That, empathy, that empathy changes the world. To give one person though that somebody can be kind to them that doesn't need to be kind sure. to them. I love sure. it. And uh, let's see. Let's see, my wife said, uh, "Oh yeah, the value." And also, 
start saving when you get out of college. It's awfully difficult. My student loan was only $900, but my room board and tuition was only $2,000, which was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, it's invested. grown a little bit. It's gone up a little bit. Just a little yeah. bit. Yes. Slightly, though. Just slightly. Yeah. The discount rate's about 66%, though. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this, yeah. That's um, good advice. You know, invest money uh, as you can and uh, think about the future. Just don't think about today. There's always tomorrow and you right. want to be prepared. I'm having that conversation with my kids this already. Yeah. And I've got yeah. a 10 and 14 year old. We're already talking about that deep with them. And if um, you're going to marry, oh, if you're no, going to go marry, ahead. Go ahead. Find, find somebody you truly love. You want to spend the rest of, rest of your life with. I've been very fortunate. I've had two wives. My first wife, we were together for 51 years. She died. She was in a home for 10 years with a, a dementia and broken kneecap. And then Barb, and I've known Barb for about 40 years, and both great women. And uh, I've been very fortunate, great support system. Yep. You're not going to do it on your own. So very well, the best yep. you can. Yeah. Well, I'm still single, Bill. I haven't found that one. <laughs> we're, we're working, <laughs> we're working on that. I have high standards. <laughs> All right, Matt's got a, a couple. We have got a few more questions for you, Bill. So Matt, okay. Bill, is there anything you're, you've been reading or listening to podcasts, books that you'd want to share with our audience? I, uh, well, I just finished a Tom Clancy um, called uh, Chain of Command, but that's exciting stuff. And you, I love you, that you, book. I just, I read it. 500 too. pages and it's over, you know? Yeah. But now uh, I read a book two or three years ago written by Mike Krzyzewski on leadership. Yeah. And I have, and I, we don't have any children. My first wife and I didn't have any children. And Barb has two daughters that are both out of college. Um, and he talks about leadership and filling leadership in his kids that come to play for him at Duke. Yeah. And I was so struck by that. I remember he recruited a kid from Chicago and he told his parents, if he's with us for uh, four years, he'll be an all American and we'll win a national championship. And um, he'll get a degree because Mike never put up a banner all the kids on his team graduated. So, you know, it might take 10 years for some banners to get up, but right. they all graduated. And he instilled that in his players. And he was strict, but he was kind, and he was a good coach, a great coach. Yeah. And Matt, you can see, you probably saw that a lot of times, how the influence you had on some of your kids. Absolutely. Maybe they're afraid to talk to their college professor, but you actually spend a lot more time with student-athletes. I've read that book from Coach K. It's a great one. It is. He's one of my favorite. Like, again, I think if he ever left Duke, he retired now. But um, I always told people I like Duke because I liked Coach K. And if he moved to a different college, I just follow him and become his fan, right? Wherever he was coaching. So what's your favorite comfort food? I'm going to say the Kringle. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, it, it, that's one of them. I'd say um, full of chili. Mm. I, I eat a lot of chili. It's got a lot of vitamins in it, and uh, it's an easy thing to me eat, and uh, you're not going to choke on it. Absolutely. Bill, is, is there a movie you go to that you love that you've watched over and over again? 
Oh, yeah, that's an easy one. It's uh, Humphrey Bogart. Casablanca. Casablanca. Oh, what a love story. Yeah. What a love story. In fact, quick story there. You know, uh, at the end, uh, Humphrey Bogart shoots the Nanaxi guy. And then uh, Captain Renault, the police show up, and he says, pick up the usual suspects. Well, I had a trial one time. And this was such a goofy trial. The cop stopped the guy because he knew he didn't have a driver's license and he was a, had been a, because he, you know, every cop in town knew this guy. And there were three other guys in the car. And um, he gets, um, stops him. He didn't stop him because the guys got away and then they, he was later arrested. So he's in jail. Uh, and then two out of the other three guys are also in jail for the trial and they're in orange suits. And this guy was allowed to put on civilian shirt and tie, not, in tie, not a tie, but shirt and pants. So everybody comes in and uh, that's advice that this guy wasn't driving, but these guys are so stupid. This guy wasn't driving, so-and-so was driving. And then the next guy comes in, no, the defendant wasn't driving, this guy was driving, it was another guy. It comes to closing arguments. Should I just, sorry. I remember Captain Renault uh, after the shooting and the police, do they have any suspects? And Renault says, and let's pick up the usual suspects. You know, and <laughs> that meant to me in the jury, you really jumped all over this because they saw these other two guys in their orange suits coming out of the side with chains on their legs. <laughs> it was a 10-minute like right? Like, these are the This is what's yeah. going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So if you were president for a day, without having to move Congress or anything like that, what's one thing that you would look to change or implement? Um, I would, um, that would help the people, everybody, at, through Medicare or Things, things that will help people because people still can't afford healthcare. And uh, Barb and I are both past 65, so we have Medicare and some other benefits. Medicare. But, but uh, people who are under 65 are really hurting. And I would do something to do to improve the welfare. We're that we are, or we should be a welfare state where we're responsible for the health of everybody. In uh, Norway, for example, Great Britain, everybody gets health care. Right. They pay more taxes, so you'd have to maneuver that because it can be paid for. There are enough right. people right. making a lot of money to pay what, what they should be paying. I'm with, so you. I'm with you there. I agree. Bill, last thing. It, with your great experiences and, and your life story and the, the lessons you've learned over the years, is there one piece of advice you'd give our audience as, as, as we, we end the podcast today? Is there a piece of advice that maybe somebody gave you a while back that you've, you've kept close to your heart? Well, my mother said, be truthful. So I've tried to be as truthful as I can my entire life. But I think this goes back to Cole. Cole provided me with some golden opportunities and now those are golden memories. And take advantage of the opportunities that you have in life. And if you can take advantage of them, do it. Don't drag your feet. Because some of these opportunities come only once a month. 
I was debating whether to uh, run for the state Senate. And uh, I didn't take that opportunity because then I'd have to declare a party. And the sitting Senator at the time, I, he's a personal friend, but I'm pretty sure with the momentum I had going, I would have won. But, and also my wife was in a hospital then. Right. Um, it, that was an opportunity, I didn't take it. But do I regret it? Yeah, sometimes I do, but in, on the whole, no, because I've had a good life treating people fairly. And somebody played me a compliment. Uh, one of my African-Americans on the board said, who now has a doctorate degree, he said, uh, Bill, you don't know this, but you have the highest respect for the community, black, black community. That was very moving. Yeah. I mean, Bill, first of all, thank you so much for your time. You know, I've been trying to like pull you in on this. I've been so excited to hear your story and get it on our podcast. I mean, you and Barb have been an amazing impact in my life. I always love it when you come to Chicago and I look forward to those visits and we always have a great time, but sharing your story for us, getting to know Matt a little bit better and, and yeah. for our listeners, I think it's just so impactful. And I really just appreciate you taking the time. It was, it was awesome. So thank you. Our so pleasure. Much. You gotta, you gotta talk to Barb sometime. Absolutely. I, I love me some Barb. She sent me some good articles the other day, so it was great. Oh, good, good. Bill, th thank, you, thank you for your service in the military and, and everything you've done in education and for your state and your community. And, and, and I'm so happy to know you and, and honored that uh, I can call you a friend now. Thank you, Matt. Same here. And go Hawks. Go Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Bill. You have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Well, Matt, what'd you think? You know, I, I've, I've, even when I was a young guy, my friends were always older than me. You know, my, my best friends in the world are eight, 10, 15 years older. And that's the way my dad was, you know, and, and it was, I, I've always had this yearning to, to learn and, and to see what people older than me have gone through. And, and I've always been enamored with their experiences and, and Bill is just great. Um, you know, we, you and I didn't have that experience. We didn't have to grow up in the civil rights, but, you know, I, I like to think that I would have been one of those people that would have hopped in a car and drove to Mississippi to be a part of that change and, 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 and to help the black community deal with the, just the overwhelming circumstances that they were dealing with. And, you know, Bill talked about that Kentucky football game where everybody was cheering for this racism and this huge racist and all these terrible, terrible principles. So um, just just impressed with his experience and what he went through and what he put himself through and um, that he continued that has continued that all the way through his life. So just a really great man. And I'm glad I know him. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've had the pleasure of sitting on the alumni board as well as the trustee board with him and always, every single time I get a chance just to pull him aside and, and pick his brain on different things. His perspective is is unique. It's thoughtful. It's considerate. And he does live literally by those principles. He literally tries to be, how can I make it an even playing field? What can I do and how can I impact and how can my voice or decisions or the part that I play help continue to try to, you know, make it an even playing field. And, and he mentioned sometimes that's like, you know, providing more funds or resources in a different way, because, it's not an even playing field today. And so he tries to do that or spending time with others. Um, so he is just an amazing human being. Um, his wife, Barb, is also amazing. Together, they're just 
so fun. Um, and I learned so much from them. So I just, he was just, it was really great to have him um, on the show. Yeah. And we, you know, we, you and I have been out of co for so long, but to know that there's people like Daryl Banks and, and, and Bill Shock and it just makes my connection to co even stronger and just makes me more proud to be a co-grad knowing that there's, there's men and women like them that just continue have, have great stories, but they've done so much of their life to give back and, and to make the world a better place and, and, and to, to bring a sense of unity and equality to the world. So great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And we again want to thank all our listeners. Uh, we hope you are enjoying and learning as much as we are. Um, again, we always love to hear from you. So please keep those messages coming to be significant. The number four, the letter U at gmail.com. Again, we love to hear from you. We love to hear your advice, your questions. Also, too, if you would like to introduce us to anybody that you feel has just been impactful and significant in your life, we would love to meet them as well. Don't forget to also follow us on Apple and Spotify. Um, go ahead. If, you, if you've liked the podcast so far, click five stars. We would love to get that from you as well. And at the end of it, don't forget to own your own life, own your own significance, make a difference where you can, and don't let life happen to you. Go out there and make it happen. Thanks for listening.